0: and get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MeatEater for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. All right,
1: welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by Onex. Today, we've got Kip Adams. Now, a lot of you are probably familiar with Kip. He works over at the Quality Deer Management Association. He's been on the podcast many times before, and most of those have been for this State of the Whitetail Union podcast that we have each year. Kip will tell you more about this in a second, but a very high-level overview of what we're gonna do here is review a document, a report that Kip helps develop every year, which highlights the top stories and issues and data across the deer hunting world each year. So looking at harvest data, looking at big trends, looking at various issues that are of importance at this time for deer and deer hunting, that's the kind of stuff we're gonna talk about. So we're covering, I don't know, deer harvest numbers, age structure, other trends in deer population and deer hunting, uh, changes in weapons use and how that's impacting populations up uh, Changes in hunter numbers and recruitment, a little bit on the latest with diseases like EHD and CWD, and other major legislative proposals that are important for us hunters to know about. All that kind of stuff that we as deer hunters need to stay on top of. Kip is going to help us cover. So I don't want to beat around the bush too much today. Um, don't have Dan. We'll catch up with Dan next week. So today will be kind of a quick one. So we'll get right into it. I just want to give you a couple quick. Uh, reminders on some other things you can be checking out if it's, you know, it's that winter time frame cabin fever setting in. If you're like me, you're, you're dreaming of wanting to be outside doing some of these different things. So let me recommend two things for you. Number one, if you still haven't watched the Back 40 series, highly, highly, highly recommend you do that. That is the TV show, essentially, that I was the host of last year, documenting the story of us buying and learning and starting the process of trying to improve this property in Michigan and then hunting it. Check it on out. So over on the Meat Eater YouTube channel, there's eight episodes and I'm very proud of how they turned out. And the new season is starting to be filmed here very shortly. So make sure you're all caught up. Number two, if you're craving some big public land adventure, if you're craving a Western hunting trip or a float trip or climbing a mountain or hunting elk or hunting caribou. If any of those things are in your mind these days when you lay in bed at night, a book you might really enjoy is That Wild Country. That's my new book I published just a couple months ago. If you haven't picked up a copy yet, it would mean the world if you could. So far, reviews have been great. People are really enjoying it, which is amazing to hear. So, so glad and fortunate and and thankful that people are, are, are liking what I put out there. So, Pick up a copy of That Wild Country, buy one for a cousin, an uncle, an aunt, a buddy, anyone who you think needs to know more about the outside, the wilderness pursuits, the story of our public land, grab them a copy, get them learned up. I certainly would appreciate that too. So there's your homework. Check out That Wild Country and the Back 40 series. All right, back with me on the show is Kip Adams. Thank you, Kip, for uh, being here again.
2: Absolutely, Mark. My pleasure.
1: Always enjoy getting to catch up, and especially our our annual check-in for this reason, I particularly enjoy because what we're going to talk about today is the QDMA Whitetail Report, which you guys put together every year. And it does a really great job, for me at least, of kind of resetting my mind not just on like how my personal hunting is going, that I do myself, but this kind of gives me this big picture idea of what's the state of whitetail hunting and whitetail deer across the country. And I love the fact that you guys do this. So thanks for doing so much work. I'm sure it's no easy task.
2: Oh, uh, my pleasure. Uh, I'm a, I'm a data guy and certainly a deer junkie. So, uh, it's nice to, uh, to kind of have the first look at, at all of this deer info, uh, from across the whitetails range.
1: Yeah, so for people that haven't heard one of these in the past or are not familiar with the whitetail report, can you just give us the quick cliff notes of of what this thing is that you guys put together?
2: Sure. Uh, We've been doing this now since 2009, so uh, more than a decade of annual reports. And uh, what we realized was, you know, we had all this access to uh, information and uh, and with our state and provincial wildlife agencies, you know, and hunters were craving this info. So we started doing uh, an annual survey where we contacted every state and provincial wildlife agency's deer project leader, and asked them uh, a series of questions on, you know, the prior seasons, buck harvest and doe harvest, age structure of those harvests um other hunting related things you know, like how many deer were shot with a firearm versus a bow versus a muzzle loader and and then um ask questions on just the biggest current topics going on you know during that given year whether it was disease related or you know crossbow related or whatever the case was and then we compile it all together and put it in this annual report and uh, folks can look at it you know on a state by state basis to kind of see how your state compares to others you know, number of bucks that you kill per square mile and does per square mile and, you know, all kinds of fun ways to just kind of gauge, you know, what's going on in the deer harvest world as well as other uh, big issues impacting hunters. So, uh, you know, if you're a deer person, uh, it's it's a one-stop shop for kind of, you know, the State of the Union address with regard uh, to whitetail hunting.
1: Yeah. Is there any other organization or governmental entity that is looking at this stuff at a national level because every state is doing this individually but i've never heard of anyone who's looking at the big picture other than you guys
2: well yeah i don't know of anybody that's put together you know or compiled as much info uh, nationally as we have and um the thing that's pretty cool about it is you know in the early years when we contacted uh, the state agencies uh, some of them were a little reluctant to give us some information and you know what but once we convinced them hey we are trying you know to to help share this information you know, and it's good for the agencies as well because they can see what's going on in, in their neighboring states and in other regions. And uh, over the years, we have received tremendous accolades from hunters, for sure, uh, from the media, but also from the state and provincial agency folks saying, hey, you know what, this is extremely helpful, you know, for us too. So that, that's the goal of it is to to share good information and help. So uh, it's always nice to, to hear folks, you know, in all of those different disciplines, you know, say, hey, we use this and uh, thanks for compiling it.
1: Oh, yeah. Given the fact that this is kind of unique, what you guys are doing compared to probably what any state has, has there been any, I don't know, major epiphany or any kind of management change or anything that's come about because of the data you guys have put together, like the big picture story? Has that given a light bulb to any organization or state that's led to some kind of change?
2: We hear a handful of stories each year where an agency will uh, thank us for a certain chapter that's in there. Um, For example, a perfect example in this year's report, one of the chapters is on uh, starting time for for firearm season. You know, when the vast majority of the states, hunters get to start a half hour before sunrise. You know, that's listed as the official start time. Um, Well, there's one state, New York. And actually, New York is the only state in the country that makes their hunters wait until sunrise. And, um, so they don't get to, you know, that first half hour. Well, Jeez. about five or six years ago, or actually maybe a little more than that now, uh, Ohio's hunters used to be in the same boat. And, uh, by collecting some information from surrounding states and putting together uh, a little plan saying, hey, you know, you guys are one of the only ones that make your hunters wait until sunrise. Um. Ohio DNR was actually able to change their regulation. So they now start at half hour before sunrise, you know, in large part because you could compare it to other states. So, uh, New York's kind of in that same boat right now where their hunters and their agency, and I know their agency would like to, or at least some in their agency would like to change that as well. So, you know, it's, a, it's a nice, uh, educational tool for that because they can look and say, look, you know, every other state in the country, <laughs> you know, allows their hunters to start a half hour before sunrise you know, there's not safety issues with that. So um, um, anyway, we have seen examples like that where because the data is together and it's, uh, you know, both a regional and a national look, um, that's enabled state agencies to change some of the ways that they manage deer, you know, that's a little more uniform with the rest of the country. So yeah. so that's pretty cool. We're glad that we can help with that.
1: Yeah, I bet Matt Ross was pretty excited to spearhead that project and get Absolutely. that change made.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, Matt is definitely in favor of... Uh, in an extra half
1: hour yeah for sure i can't i can't imagine not being able to hunt that first half hour of daylight that's tough
2: i know you know what's funny about that too is that south carolina um, is the only state that goes more than that and uh, and their hunters are allowed to start an hour before sunrise whoa so uh yeah that i thought (laughs) that that, that, that was my sentiments exactly you know and and sometimes we get they like and say oh geez you know did we input this data wrong or you know the agency guy tell us wrong, so we confirmed. You know with the South Carolina DNR, and they said no, no that that's right. That's that's when we start. So, uh, but, uh, but yeah, like I dark. thought the same thing. Like <laughs> wow, that is. You know, there's lots of times. You know, with a you know real bright night, or if you have snow on the ground, you can definitely see. You know, maybe a little before a half hour before sunrise, but uh, I'm thinking you know an hour. Is, an hour is pushing that's it a little pushing bit.
1: It. Yeah, half hour before sunrise always seemed like just right. It's like that. That natural breaking point where colors start to pop a little more. Okay, yeah, all right, it's daylight, it's time. Um, but an hour could be pitch black almost.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: Uh well, that's interesting. So let's 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 talk about this year, the 2020 report, and this examines two thousand eighteen season data, correct? That you're re- that you're reviewing that comes out in nineteen?
2: That is correct. Yep. So, um, the most recent season hunting season where the data is all in and compiled and able to be, to be shared is with the, you know, through the 2018 and, the into 19 hunting season. Okay. And, um, cause actually right now, you know, there's still a, a few hunting seasons, you know, that are just finishing up actually Alabama's still going. So, so it, some people say, well, geez, if it's the 20 report, you know, why are you using 18 data? Well, it's because, you know, the 19 hunting season technically is not done yet everywhere, and, and that data is not available. So yeah. so, yeah, so it's the most recent season that's all done, and the uh, data is shared with the country.
1: Okay, so what's the high-level grade? Like, if you were the professor, and your class was the United States deer hunting season, and you were going to rate that season on a F through A scale um, in some kind of somewhat objective way, how would you rate this season?
2: Well, I will. Uh, I'll break that into two, and I'll actually give it two grades. I'll give it one for uh, for the buck harvest side of it, and I'll give you one for the antlerless harvest side. And um, for the buck harvest side, um, hunters definitely would would rate it as an A. Um, it was one of the highest buck harvests of all time, and um, that's saying a lot because you know the, historically our our country has was very very good at shooting bucks, and uh, we are at historically high numbers again. Um, that there was the total buck harvest was over 2.9 million antler deer, you know, and that does not count buck fawns. Buck fawns go into the antlerless side. So, deer that are one and a half and older, it was over 2.9 million. That actually was down just a hair from the year before, um, but we're still way above uh, national averages. So, from the buck side, um, definitely an A, lots of bucks, and uh, we'll touch on age structure here in a minute, but uh, unbelievable age structure. So, lots of bucks, arguably the best age structure ever so we get an a for that uh from the antler side um a little lower grade for that but uh we can we can talk more a little more about the buck harvest first before we get into the antler side if you'd like
1: sure yeah so so let's expand on the age structure thing then um looks like the trend that has been going for a, a decade or a decade and a half or so now continues right that is correct.
2: yep. and now uh, we have been monitoring the age structure of the buck harvest uh, since 1989. So uh, a long time yeah and um, last year um, it was literally the best age structure in our country's history. Um, and I would say that the best by we monitor the percentage of all the buck shot that were one and a half years old, those that were two and a half years old, and then those that were three and a half and older. So kind of group all of those older ones together. And um, last year, only 30 percent, so less than a third of all the bucks shot, were one and a half years old. And that is by far the lowest percentage in U.S. history. Wow.
1: Now, this is when you average out across all the states, though, right? There's some states that are much higher than that.
2: There's some states that are much lower, correct? That is correct. Yep. Yeah. So uh, the you know the average, to give you a, a feel, in 1989, when we started monitoring this, uh, over 60 percent of all the buck shot, we're just one and a half years old. So uh, that statistic has been more than cut in half today. So, you know, and some people look at that and say, you know, well, why is this a good thing? Well, essentially what that means is, you know, if we are protecting the majority of yearling bucks each year, that allows the majority to, you know, at least hit two and a half years of age. And we can go ahead and start shooting them then. That's fine. But the good thing is, is we won't get them all. So some will become three and a half. Some will become four and a half and five and a half, et cetera. And once we have that balanced age structure on the buck side, you know, that's very natural for deer populations. It's very healthy for them. That's how they evolved. That's how their social order works best. So as managers, you know, we should be interested in making sure we do uh, match that natural age structure. And uh, with with what we're shooting today, it allows that to happen. So uh, that's a really good place to be.
1: Yeah, can you expand on what you're just saying there as far as the benefits of that balanced age structure? Because you get this a lot where people say, well, you just want to, you talk about this management, but it's really just because you want big antler deer. Um, Not as many people understand the the benefits from a health perspective and a habitat perspective and all that. Can you just give us a little primer on that too, just for people
2: that maybe aren't familiar? Sure. Uh, Deer are very social far more social than most people realize. And, uh, and they evolved under this very complex social order where they are always sharing information at, at rubs and at scrapes. They're leaving information there through pheromones where, you know, younger deer pick up on these cues and there's a whole social order that works based on having this complete age structure of deer that are, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years old and older. And, uh, all of that starts to fall apart if you don't have those older animals there. Now, some people will say, well, you know, all of the out there will be bred even if you only have young deer. And, and that is true, even if all the bucks are only one and a half years old. Sure, they can handle the breeding requirements for that deer herd, but that's a pretty poor measure of herd health. So uh, a much better measure is, hey, let's let's make sure that we're managing for a deer herd that is natural. And if you look today Mark in, in unhunted populations of deer like in urban areas or other places we just can't hunt, they have very advanced age structures. If you look in Native American trash piles where they can pull out jaw bones and you know before white man had a big impact, they had very advanced age structures. So I mean that's just a natural thing and so as wildlife managers we should strive to, you know, produce what would naturally happen anyway and uh, that happens when we have very balanced age structures of deer. That lets the social orders work. That keeps those, those younger bucks from spending so much energy in the fall and winter trying to breed. It allows them to have more body fat going into winter. So survival is higher. They're healthier in the spring at green up. So there's a whole bunch of pieces that play into that. But uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's very clear that balanced age structures for white-tailed deer are Certainly good for hunters because we have the opportunity to pursue older bucks, that is true. However, they're also very uh, important for the deer herd themselves. Is this the
1: biggest change that you guys have seen since starting the whitetail report? I mean, if you were to look at over this from from the first report to now or from when you were tracking things first and you look at all this data that you've been studying year after year after year, is this the most substantial Difference, or is there anything else that stands out? Like, hey, this is a lot different than it used to be, as
2: well. There's there's two really big differences. Uh, this is definitely one of them, where uh, you know age structure has changed. So you know, only thirty percent now are one, and thirty seven percent of the buck harvest last year was at least three years old. So they were three or four or five. That is by far the highest percentage of those older bucks. So uh, literally, that's a you know a monumental change in what's gone on. So, uh, there's also one other huge change that, uh, that we can address next, but, uh, this age structure difference is definitely one of the two biggest things that has changed since we began writing this back in 2009. So then what's the next one? The next one is actually the, uh, the sex ratio of the harvest. Um, hmm. I told you that, uh, we shot over 2.9 million bucks last year and it's record high buck harvest numbers, uh, the flip side of that is the antlerless side. So while I would give uh, hunters an A for the buck side, um, we are a lot closer to a C, grade C, for the antlerless side. And the, and the reason for that is, um, for the second year in a row, we shot more bucks than we did antlerless deer. Um, the first time in U.S. history that we shot more antlerless deer than we did bucks was back in 1999. And, uh, and that was a historic year Managing deer because for most of the whitetails range, we need to be shooting more does than bucks each year for to have healthy populations. There, there are certainly some places in the country. Um, New England comes to mind. Florida comes to mind, where we can be successful by shooting more bucks than does each year. But for the vast majority of uh, the country, that is not the case. So, well, in your home state of Michigan, think of it this way. Yeah. You know, In the UP, you know, you can be successful, you know, by shooting. About the same number of bucks as does in the UP, you know that keeps deer herds in check. Mm-hmm. It keeps things balanced. But in the southern, you know, peninsula, you can't be successful. Though. You have to shoot more out of deer. Yeah. Well, we have been doing that for a long time, and, and that's really one of the the reasons, you know, of, the foundation of QDMA is hey, you know, let's balance deer herds of habitat. We do that by protecting some of those young bucks and and focusing an effort on does. So ninety nine was a landmark year, and then for a couple of decades after that, we continued to shoot way more antlerless deer than bucks. Well, two years ago, that changed. It was the first year since, you know, in the late 90s that we actually shot more bucks than does. And it was just a few more, a few thousand, that was it. Well, last year, the gap got wider. We again shot a lot more bucks than antlerless deer, and uh, we shot almost 50,000 more bucks across the U.S., so that's not good. The antlerous harvest has dropped about 20% in the last decade. Um, in some places that's needed. We've had places where we've balanced deer herds and places where we've lost a lot of deer to disease. But uh, in much of the country, um, that is not the case. So we are absolutely going the wrong way with the antlerous side. And uh, that showed again last year. So, so yeah, I so give is. us a grade to see.
1: Yeah. What do you think? What's behind that? Is that because hunters don't think the deer populations are where they should be. So it's a choice to to try to, you know, reestablish populations that hunters don't think are large enough, or is this, I mean, I don't know. What's the theory behind it? Do you have one? I think,
2: yeah, I think there's a couple things. One is um, there are still a, a faction of hunters who, you know, who don't, just simply don't want to shoot antelous deer. Um, it tends to be a lot older hunters. Um, younger and newer hunters tend to be much more, uh, likely to shoot antlerless deer, to put that meat in the freezer, uh, to do their part for conservation and and be good stewards of the natural resources. So you still have some people who just choose to, to not shoot antlerless deer. And part of it is we have some pretty liberal, uh, buck bag limits in a lot of the country. So people would just rather, you know, shoot something with antlers than not. And, uh, I, I get that, but, uh, one of the dangers of that is we've actually looked, this was, this data came from last year's whitetail report. What we found is across the country, uh, less than half of all the hunters in the U S will shoot a deer in any given year. It's only 41%. So four out of 10 hunters kill a deer. Uh, only 15% of hunters kill more than one deer. So it's a small number of people who shoot multiple deer a year. So you know, you, me, and our friends were the anomaly yeah. <laughs> we're The ones that are killed. I, mean, I can't imagine that. You know, we, the Adams family eats a lot more than two uh-huh. deer a year. <laughs> but because of that, since such a small number shoots more than one deer, um, a lot of states allow people to, you know, kill at least two bucks. So, with that, you know, if the average person's only shooting one, they prefer to shoot a buck. And if that small number that gets to shoot more than one, you know, they often, if they have a chance, they will take a second buck too. So we're just, we're focusing too much effort, even though our buck age structure is really, really good. You know, these historically high buck harvest rates is because, you know, if people take that second deer and it's a small number that do, but for those that do, many of them take another buck and we're just simply not putting enough effort on the antler side.
0: Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts, who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one stop shop for all things do it yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at o'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto, O R E I L L Y, O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater.
1: Yeah. Okay. So I know this is well-trod ground, but again, let's assume there's new hunters listening. Why is it important that we try to take out some of these antlerless deer and manage them a little bit better? Why is this so important? What happens when we don't do that?
2: Well, the the way that we control deer populations um, is through the antlerless harvest. Um, You know, We can shoot all the bucks we want, but that's not controlling population growth. In most cases, we have to shoot the antlerless side. So, and we want to keep deer herds healthy. We do that when we have balanced sex ratios. Now, if you take all the fawns born in Michigan this year or my home state of Pennsylvania or anywhere else, about half of them are buck fawns and about half are doe fawns. So just from that, you have to shoot about the same numbers of bucks as does each year just to keep that sex ratio balance, keep that deer herd healthy and have any chance of keeping deer from becoming too overabundant. So, that's uh, that's the the very quick and dry and short answer yeah. to say, hey, it is so important. And I'll tell you, now with the, the spread of CWD, it's becoming more and more clear that in these disease zones, it is even more important to focus additional harvest effort on these does or we're just absolutely losing the disease game.
1: Yeah, I, w- I want to talk about that specifically in a minute, um, but one more clarifying question on the overabundance thing again just to get folks up to speed here what happens to a deer herd and an area when you have way too many deer what are what because there's a whole cascade of
2: effects when your deer population is out of whack with the habitat can you just walk us through that a little bit Sure. Uh, Deer eat a lot. And and the average deer eats about 2,000 pounds of food a year. So smaller deer eat less than that, bigger deer eat more. But on average, they're eating a ton apiece. So you know that's a lot of food that we have to provide. And as soon as we have more deer than we have adequate food available, what they start doing is then the deer herd starts degrading that habitat and then they're being nutritionally deprived. So they're not as healthy as they were. And then what that means is as they start degrading the habitat, then other wildlife species are negatively impacted. The habitat is negatively impacted. And then since they are degraded next year, that area can't hold as many deer as it could this year. So it can support fewer deer next year and then fewer the year after that. And you know, from a hunting end, you know, that's absolutely the wrong way we want to go. You know, and, and just from being a good steward, that's wrong. So we want to make sure that there's not more deer than we have good food for because that negatively impacts all the wildlife species and all that habitat that's there um, headed in the wrong direction. So and the cool thing is, though, as soon as we balance that deer herd and shoot enough antlerless deer, the deer that are left are healthier. They have more fawns. The habitat is healthier, which means it's better for turkeys and songbirds and, and non-game species. You know, it's a it's a win-win when we, when we pull the trigger on enough antlerless deer.
1: Yeah, and then from a hunting perspective, too, wouldn't you agree that – having that better balanced antlerless side will lead to a more intense rut which is going to give you a more fun hunting experience too
2: absolutely absolutely and that puts more bucks on their feet more during daylight hours during the fall which is you know exactly what we want you've you've never heard a hunter say man when i go hunting today i hope the bucks are just not moving <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. you know, we don't want but if you have Way more antlerless deer than than bucks. That's that's often what happens because they don't have to move very far to find a doe. Yeah. So, yeah, balanced age structures make deer move more, and they make them move more during daylight hours, which which is good for us as hunters.
1: Yeah. So okay, so that's what's going on from a buck and doe harvest. We talked about age structure. Any other big things that stood out to you this year as far as headlines for the 2020 report?
2: Yeah, one of the because of this whole antlerless thing where we're not shooting as many deer, um, we asked all the states a question. Hey, you know, like, what is your preference for the antlerless harvest in your state? You know, Do you want to see them shoot more antlerless deer than bucks or about the same number or more bucks than those? Like, we wanted to see what the philosophy of the agencies were. And um, it, was, it was extremely regional. What we found is the vast majority of the Northeast – They want the buck harvest – I'm sorry, the antlers harvest to be more than the buck harvest. You know, like, hey, we know we need to kill more antlers deer. Um, The exception to that was New England. And New England, um, they want to shoot more bucks than does simply because they just don't – they can't sustain the same type of harvest that you can or or we can here. Just deer habitat type, right? That's right. Yep. And then the severe winters and, you know, and and, uh, fawn recruitment is lower. So, they just don't – they're just – those deer herds aren't as productive as, you know – um, places where it's a little easier to live. But, but, uh, so most of the Northeast wants to shoot more antlers than bucks. Uh, the Southeast was different. And most of that says, you know what, as long as the buck harvest is about equal to our antlers harvest, we're pretty good. That, that's what we'd like to see. So, uh, that's very different from what we have in the Northeast. And then the Midwest was kind of in between the two. Some of the, the States wanted more does some didn't. And, uh, you guys, actually, the Lower Peninsula, they said, absolutely, we need to shoot more antlers deer than bucks. Yeah. The UP was about the same, you know, same number of each. And uh, this this is very helpful because there's a lot of hunters that hear what I talk about or you or others, and uh, but where they're from really matters. So, for example, if you're from Florida, you know, area that's just not real productive soils, not real productive deer herds. You know, you just can't sustain anywhere near the same levels of antlers harvest as a Michigan or Pennsylvania or Iowa or those. So so it's very helpful for hunters to see, hey, what's my agency's philosophy on this? Because then it allows them, you know, to to help more during the deer season, either shoot an extra antlers deer or two extra antlerless deer or, or wherever the case is. So it can allow them to be a better partner and, and more engaged on what's going on.
1: Hmm. You know, one of the things, uh, this is a little bit of a segue, but it brings to mind another one of the topics you guys covered in the report. And one of the things that hunters have been worried about for many years has that has been the introduction of crossbows and the theory being that if we introduce crossbow seasons, that's going to get way too many deer being killed by these crossbows that are too easy for people to use. And that's going to result in the crash of deer populations or, or some other issues. Um, you guys took a look a little bit at crossbows this year in the report. Is there any truth to that kind of impact that crossbows could have? Or, or what have you guys seen as far as that introduction over the last, I don't know, decade or 15 years or however long it's been that crossbows have been more and more uh, popularly utilized?
2: That's a great question. And that is a growing concern by many. Um one of the things that, that we looked at in this report is, is we take a look at the total deer harvest and we ask the agencies, hey, what percentage was taken by a bow or a muzzleloader or a firearm? And, uh, and the bows, bow and crossbow together. And what we saw, you know, we've been monitoring this for a long time and uh, 15 to 20 years ago, um, only about 15% of the total harvest was taken by bows. You know, now this was kind of before most of the crossbow seasons were, were put into effect. Um fast forward to now and over about the last five years um, this number has stabilized but over the last five years bows and crossbows take about a quarter of the deer harvest so that climbed a lot when you were seeing a lot more crossbow seasons but it's, it's kind of stabilized right there and year in and year out it's about 23 percent so that is not changing over the last few years so firearms still take about two-thirds of all the deer However, what is changing is the percentage of that archery harvest that's taken by crossbows. And, uh, and we took a look at, hey, which states allow you or allow the vast majority of hunters to use crossbows during the archery season. You know, you don't have to be a senior or a youth hunter or have a disability or whatever. Um, today, in the vast majority of the country, uh, or at least the vast majority of the eastern two-thirds of the country, where, where most whitetails live, um, Almost everybody can use a, a crossbow during archery season, so that's really grown, which then begs the question, okay, what impact are those crossbows having? And what we see is they're really not changing the overall deer harvest. Um, no state has you know, changed their crossbow laws because crossbows are killing too much. Nobody has, has made those efforts yet. However, the one big change we're seeing right now is there are a handful of states where now the crossbow harvest exceeds the vertical bow harvest. Um, places like your state of Michigan, mine in Pennsylvania, Ohio, Virginia, Wisconsin, some of these really big you know, and, and long-term deer hunting states, now people are really taking advantage of crossbows. So it's changing the actual archery harvest. Archery harvest has stayed about the same. It's not getting higher. But more of those deer are now being taken by crossbow, and that's drawn uh, attention from a lot of hunters, uh, particularly a lot of traditional bow hunters.
1: So it's not impacting deer herd levels. It's not impacting the uh, – any kind of – Oh, it's not impacting the herd. It's simply impacting how people – how hunters are engaging with the herd, so how people are doing it. So really it comes down to – People that would otherwise be killing deer with a vertical bow are switching to a horizontal or, yeah, a horizontal bow, a crossbow, and just utilizing this easier option. Um, Or do we think that it's that crossbows are doing one of the things that people hypothesized, which is that they are allowing new hunters to come into the game in a more easy fashion or keeping long-term bow hunters in the game longer as they get older do we have any data or anecdotal evidence that one of those two things happening
2: it, it's we do and, it, and it's a little bit of all of those things that you just said um, there's no doubt that uh, they are bringing or allowing uh, young hunters to, to partake in the archery season uh, at an earlier age than they would my kids are perfect examples, you know, my kids, uh, before, or my son this year when he was 10 and my daughter, when she was, uh, I think nine was her first year under 10, you know, we were, were archery hunting with me. They both shoot a vertical bow in the background or I mean, in the backyard with me and love it, but you know, neither one of them pull or at that time, anyway, anywhere near enough weight, you know, to hunt with that bow. However, you know, so they, we'd stay in the backyard and shoot our compound bows, but then we'd go hunting. We, we got a crossbow so, you know, they could start hunting then. And we are seeing that, you know, in many states. So the one thing that's a little funny with us, though, is that no states are being able to show, you know, this big increase in hunter numbers because this directly resulted in, from being able to use crossbows. But there's no doubt that there's a lot of young hunters today hunting with a crossbow that just simply couldn't with a compound. Um, there's no doubt there's a lot of aging hunters that are able to continue to hunt in the archery season because they can use crossbows. And it's undeniable that there's a lot of new adult hunters trying hunting because they can use a crossbow first. And uh, our field to fort programs are a perfect example, yeah. you know, where we find adult hunters who want to do that. Many of them are, particularly many of, of the ladies that get involved, are very intimidated by shooting a, a shotgun or a rifle, you know, and just have want nothing to do with that at first. However, they think, ooh, the crossbow, like, ooh, I, I can do that. You know, I, I want to get my own food. And I'll try it with a crossbow. Yeah. So there's definitely some some evidence that those are helping, um, at least some, with recruiting hunters and, and retaining some hunters.
1: So there's seemingly no big picture negative impact from them. There's seemingly some possible positive impact. Um, it comes down to a purity issue for some hunters. What do either you or the Quality Deer Management Association say? to those who have concerns still, what's the stance of the organization or, or you personally?
2: Yeah, well, I'm, I am a diehard bow hunter. Um, you know, I, I am very serious about taking my, my compound to the woods. And so, um, I get it when, when there's other diehard hunters, that you know just really despise crossbows. And, um, and I know a lot of people that do, however, you know, I, I try to look at the big picture and say, even though I don't choose to hunt with a crossbow, um, Man, I'm sure I'm glad that my kids can come hunting with it. And you know, I have a, an older member of our deer camp who's in his 80s now that bow hunted his whole life that just simply can't anymore, but but he still crossbow hunts. So man, I, I'm glad that he can come. And you know, and I'm so my take on it is hey, you know, we need hunters more than ever before. So if crossbows are not having any negative biological impact on deer herds, but they can help get more people into the woods. Man, I'm totally fine sharing the archery woods. You know, with somebody else using a crossbow. Um, I get it in some states where their buck harvest is, you know, a lot. Crossbows are taking a lot more of those bucks and taking them earlier in the year, you know, than some of the the firearm hunters can get to. But uh, man, anybody can you know can get a crossbow and go hunt. So I. I can see both sides, but, uh, man, I'm totally fine sharing woods with somebody using a crossbow, you know, God bless them for wanting to hunt and uh, and to be out there.
1: Yeah. I'd I'd rather have somebody getting into it and learning to love this stuff and this resource and maybe someday standing up for it. I'd rather have that person out there doing that than never getting into it at all because they didn't feel comfortable with a compound or gun. So that's right. No, I agree. I'm with you. So speaking of that hunter recruitment, uh, Challenge, which crossbows we hope is our, our one small way to help address that. I didn't see this addressed addressed in the report, but but from your perspective, or from any of the other things that you've been involved in or looking at, where do we stand on that front? I mean, I, there's a big article that came out in the Washington Post recently talking about declining hunter numbers and the impacts that's having on conservation funding. It's a thing that we continue to talk about year after year after year. Um, just what's your what's your sense of or what's What's the pulse on that? Where are we doing anything right? Are we still trending in the wrong direction? Do you feel like we're making any impact of the programs we're trying
2: or the, all the talk about it? Well, I do. And, um, you know, it's, it's undeniable that we're losing hunters and then we're losing them at an alarming rate, um, of all the different recruitment programs and retention programs that are out there. You know, we have not had a lot of success with those. I think mostly because the majority of them were focused on youth and, um, about five years ago we started to take we being cutie may took a little different look and said hey you know like we we still do a lot of youth stuff but hey what if we did something that focused on some more adults who may want to go hunting and that's kind of what our, our field to fort program was born out of and um i share that to say that has been the one success story that we have seen in the opportunity to kind of turn the tide on loss of hunter numbers um for example, a lot of youth programs, you know, the actual impact is pretty minimal. Um, you know, because first of all, a kid can't take himself hunting. They need somebody to take him. They can't buy Mm a bow or a gun. And so if they didn't have opportunity to go, then sure, let's take them and show them a good time and expose them to it. But you know, that's not a big recruitment factor that way. However, with an adult, Hey, they can get a bow, they can drive, they can buy a license. And so what we have seen with our field to fork programs is, uh, about 80% of all the people that go through those continue to hunt the next year. Wow. They buy a license, they buy bows, they buy guns, they buy camo clothing. So, so we, I think are on the verge of having something to really change that, that tide. Um, we've spent the last few years kind of developing, a model that we know will work with regard to mentoring hunters. So we're in the process right now of scaling that up and being able to use it at a much broader scale where it doesn't just have to be QDMA staff and volunteers that can implement these programs and get these people involved, but we can have others who aren't even affiliated with us follow these methods that we have shown to work very well that then we can do this in communities across the United States. So... Is it going to work, man? I I sure hope so. And I think we have a better model than anything that we've had, you know, in the last several decades to do this. So, uh, it's just a matter of we're able to pull it off at a scale that really makes a difference. But, uh, but there's no doubt Mark that the future is brighter, at least for this model than anything else that we have seen in a long time.
1: Yeah. I am excited about that too. I do. I do believe you guys have, have, uh, found something you've tapped into something that really does have some potential so excited to hopefully continue helping on that front and and make that a reality and, and make that yeah. scaling possible
2: mm-hmm. yeah and you have been involved in those so i mean you see the power of them you know oh, yeah you have mentored hunters you know and that's as much as anything is that historically hunters look at this as hey i'm i'm gonna you know i'm gonna be a consumer i am gonna go i'm gonna hopefully shoot something and eat it I'm going to use these opportunities. Well, we need to change that dialogue some to, we need to understand that every hunter has said, you know what, I'm going to do all this. However, it is my responsibility to then also teach somebody else. And uh, and I know you do that and, and you're very good at it. And uh, we need to impress upon the mass of hunters, you know, hey, this is why it's important. And once we convince you it's important, okay, here are the materials or the way to make it easy for you to then go ahead and do this.
1: Yeah, I've just always thought that, I personally, we all get so much from hunting, so many benefits, so many ways that it enriches our lives. Um, it just, I think if you enjoy those benefits, it then becomes incumbent upon you to give back, to try to pass it on, to try to give back to the resource or to help other people enjoy that resource. So it just seems like an obligation, like not even a question, it's just something you you absolutely should have to do. Um, so I hope hopefully more and more people, uh,
0: ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. This episode is brought to you in part by O'Reilly Auto Parts who are in the business of keeping your car on the road and also keeping you happy. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. I use the O'Reilly by me. It's right in downtown where I live. And the team there is super knowledgeable. When you got questions, they're happy to help you out. It's a great store to go into. The team at O'Reilly Auto Parts, they can test your battery for free in or out of your car. And don't ignore your check engine light. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today, a free diagnostic service exclusively at O'Reilly Auto Parts. Need your windshield wipers replaced, brake light fixed, quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop to get some help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things do it yourself, and you can find what you need in the store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'Reilly Auto O-R-E-I-L-L-Y. O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater.
1: I want to I want to switch gears a little bit, Kip, from what is a little bit of a glimmer of, of hope on the front of this new program that's helping with some hunter recruitment. I want to skip to something that's a little less um, positive, which is the whole topic of disease across the country. I know this is another area of, of continuous change and evolution, as you guys have been doing the Whitetail Report, um, EHD and CWD have both come up. Various times, either annually or here and there, uh, as we've talked over the years, doing these annual check-in podcasts. Where do things stand right now with EHD and CWD? What's our status report, um, and what do you foresee
2: moving forward? Well, from the EHD end, um, we're continuing to see more frequent outbreaks. Um, and if folks aren't from the EHDs, it's a hemorrhagic disease. It's a you know, it's a viral disease. That's one of the most natural diseases of deer. It's carried by the noceum, so these little biting midges. Uh, that's the disease that's carried during the summer. we often see deer end up you know, near water. Um, it's very common with deer. Um, what we're seeing is an expansion of the severity of those outbreaks. It used to be just kind of the disease of deer in the southeastern US. And um, you know those deer were exposed to it every year, they can develop antibodies against it. So you didn't see these big die-offs. Well, what we're seeing now is, you know, it's not a disease of the southeast anymore at all. You know, it's all the way up into Canada. It's all the way across the country, you know, through Montana. Um, So, a lot more deer herds being exposed. You know, we are seeing more severe die-offs on a more regular basis. So, definitely bigger impacts than in the past. Now, the good thing is, you know, if deer, some deer survive, and that doesn't kill everybody. And uh, even some that get it survive, and then they are more resistant to it in the future. So, the overall impact, yeah, we lose a bunch of deer in some areas, but they recover very quickly. There's no long-term effects, and then you just kind of go on with it. That's very different from from CWD, where you know it's 100% fatal to all deer. You know they don't recover from it, and um, once it's there, the bad thing about CWD is it takes a while to infect enough deer in a deer herd to start seeing population level declines. So Unlike hemorrhagic disease, where people find, oh God, deer got it now, they're dead. A week later, I can see that, I understand this is bad. CWD doesn't work that way. It's like kind of like the slow killer. So many hunters just don't realize the the severity of it. But big picture, CWD is way worse for deer herds and the future of hunting than hemorrhagic disease. You know, it's like scales worse.
1: So what's the latest update on CWD then? Uh, I know that we continue to hear new reports trickle out week after week after week, year after year after year. What are the headlines of CWD this year?
2: Well, um, it continues to, to expand. Uh, it's now in 26 states, so it's in over half of the U.S., and several foreign countries as well, but we see continued expansion of it. Um, new states as well as areas within states that already had it. Um, there's been a lot of you know, doom and gloom over CWD in the past because we had so few success stories. But uh, you know what? Even though it is continuing to to spread, for the first time, we are starting to have some research help us out with some some positive things. Uh, for example, this past year, for the first time ever now, we know, hey, we can finally, decontaminate or clean knives, saws, and other things that we process deer with, you know, so we know how to get rid of the prions off the stainless steel, and uh, it's pretty cool, you know, it's as simple as a, as a bleach bath, basically. Can't decontaminate a, a carcass or the environment yet, but at least we have a step in how to beat this on our equipment that we use, the uh, knives and stuff, to field dress and cut up deer, so that's a good thing. Um, we know for the first time, possibly, through some some soil properties, these humic acid properties, where hey, we know something in the environment that now may help us in this fight against CWD. So it's they're small steps, but man, it's nice to have something positive for the first time in this fight. Because uh, as this continues to spread and impact more deer herds and more hunters, um, you know we need some good news and every little advantage that we have. Gets us a little bit closer to being able to do something to stop this disease.
1: Yeah. Could, could, could you expand on the soil uh, topic with that research has
2: shown? Is that something you feel comfortable expounding on? Sure. Um, there's, there's been some research. And we know once CWD is in an area, in the environment, um, the prions stay in the ground and can it affect other deer. So, for example, if a deer has CWD positive and it urinates or defecates in the ground, um, other deer come in contact with that. And then they can contract the disease this is why when you get it uh the disease you know you can they outlaw baiting they outlaw feeding they outlaw mineral licks because they don't want deer swapping you know spit or eating where another deer urinated or defecated because they can contract the disease well we also know that wherever that prions are on the ground there are certain plants growing there that can actually uptake those prions up through the plant and have them in their leaves so if another animal comes and eats those leaves You know there is a chance that that deer can contract the disease from that. So man, this is in the environment. We can't decontaminate environment. You know this is this is a bad deal. Mm -hmm. Well, now researchers have seen with this humic acid or some of these different soil properties. Hey, you know what? Maybe now there's something that just you know is a natural ward to these prions. So they don't understand exactly how to use that to our benefits yet, but. It's way different than everything else we have seen in the environment where certain pr- or certain soils, like clay soils especially, tend to bind these prions more tightly and can you know, potentially infect deer at a higher rate in those type of soils. Well, now with humic acid, there's something about these soils that make them you know, way less susceptible, make deer way less susceptible to this disease. So even though they don't understand the entire connection yet, we have identified something that may help us in this battle against CWD. So there's there's a lot of pieces that still have to be put together, but at least it's a step in the right direction, um, because you know there's there's nothing that we know of until very recently that we could could decontaminate any area where the disease was. So yeah. you know so and, but it's, the more we understand about how to do that, then the better job we can do at limiting spread of these prions and trying to get rid of them once they are there. So. Um, every little bit helps for sure, even if we don't have all the pieces put together. Yeah, at least that is a very positive step.
1: Yeah. So you don't think that sending fire trucks full of bleach to spray all over uh, the county isn't a, isn't a really good <laughs> solution?
2: <laughs> not, not yet. Not yet. And it's funny because when they came out with the research about using bleach to clean a knife, you know they have big letters to make it very clear. Hey, this does not work on tissue. <laughs> you know, don't put it up because you know the first time somebody reads that, they can say, hey, well, if it cleans my knife, what if I just soak his backstrap? Oh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, so no, it does not, uh, doesn't get into tissue at all. It's only on stainless steel. So okay. if your deer is not made of stainless steel, don't try to clean that with, <laughs> with the bleach.
1: Yeah, and I hope you're not shooting any stainless steel deer. <laughs>
2: That's um, right. <laughs>
1: speaking of, uh, trying to battle CWD though, you did allude earlier to, uh, this whole topic of antlerless harvest and the importance of focusing on does when it comes to managing CWD. There's a lot of talk about the importance of buck harvest when trying to contain CWD because bucks tend to disperse more. Um, but I know you wrote an article and you've been trying to make sure people understand that you can't forget about does. Can you uh, talk about
2: that a little bit? Sure. Um so much of the fight against CWD, um, focuses on killing bucks. And, and the reason for that is because bucks carry the disease at a higher rate than does. And, um, and there's some great data from, from multiple States that show that, you know, adult bucks are about twice as likely to have it as adult does. Uh, yearling bucks are more likely to have it than yearling does. So a lot of the effort has been at, Hey man, don't let these bucks get older. We got to kill them, you know, before they take this disease, you know, and infect everybody. Well, in doing that, a lot of the educational campaigns by agencies and, and even a lot of deer managers get so focused on the buck side that I think that, you know, they're going to lose the war. And, and what I mean by that is there's four big reasons, and this is what I wrote about, to not forget about the does. One is that some, some great research out of Wisconsin showed that just because of the social order of deer, bucks tend to be a lot more loners, where does, you know, they just live in these family groups. So uh, if a doe... Had a relative nearby that was cWd positive. That doe was ten times more likely to have the disease. So what that means is these family groups, as soon as one of them hits the disease, you know everybody else in that group is much more likely to get it. Once they get it, they then become these reservoirs of the disease in the environment that we can't we can't decontaminate. We can't get rid of it. So we need to absolutely minimize the opportunity for this happening. And that happens by, shooting antless deer and keeping deer herds in balance with the habitat. So that's one. The second thing is part of the reason that some agencies focus effort on young bucks or say, hey, we need to take off these antler restrictions to kill these yearling bucks. It's because these yearling bucks disperse. And, and there's lots of research that shows that when bucks are 12 to 18 months old, half to three quarters of them are going to disperse from where they were born and set up their own home range. And, and they tend to do this one to five miles away. So what some have said is, holy cow, if they're going to go they might take the disease with them and introduce it into a new area. Let's kill them. And, and there's certainly some warrant to that, that when they disperse, they can move the disease. But by focusing all that effort on those young bucks, we end up then killing fewer antlerless deer. Well, some very brand new research out of Minnesota In southeast Minnesota specifically, is following young bucks and young does, and what they're finding is their young bucks are dispersing at about exactly the same rate as all the other studies show, but their does are dispersing at about the exact same rate. So while you know half to three quarters of the young bucks are leaving, half to the three quarters of the young does are too. They're dispersing, and they're dispersing almost as far. So there's a you know opportunity for them to spread this disease too. So We can't focus too much of that effort just on those young bucks. We need to be focusing it on the does as well, or our uh, efforts are lost. Uh, Third thing is, and I think this is one of the biggest things, Mark. I fully have seen the data and understand that adult bucks are about twice as likely to have the disease as adult does. However, what people forget about is take any place in the country, or just about any place in the country, certainly any place outside of South Texas, any given deer herd has way more than two adult does for every adult buck. So take where you are. Okay, maybe you're doing a good job managing and you got you know, one or two five-year-old bucks on the property. I will promise you, you have more than two or four or five-year-old does. Oh there. yeah. <laughs> so what happens is, even though those bucks are twice as likely to have the disease, you know, every deer herd that we see has more than twice as many adult does as adult bucks. So even though they are less likely to have the disease, just by sheer numbers of those does on the landscape, there will always be more CWD-positive does than CWD-positive bucks out there. Yeah. So if we are going to manage this disease, we have got to be killing those does. And you and I talked about it earlier where less than half of the hunters kill a deer. Only 15% kill more than one deer. Take Michigan. You can kill two bucks in Michigan. So what happens is so many of these people end up shooting a buck or shoot two bucks Where and then they don't shoot those does, you know? They're not sharing that meat with others, and I put so we are absolutely going the wrong way, and that's why I've told people, hey, if you focus all of your effort on young bucks or on bucks in general, um, hey, that's the wrong way to do. You can win this buck battle, but you're going to lose the disease war. You absolutely are. So, do we need to shoot bucks? We certainly do, but we need to be focusing even more effort on the antler side, and this is especially true once you're in a CWD zone.
1: Yeah. Great, great point. Has there been any, I know, I I think if I remember right, Minnesota was kind of updated their plan for CWD recently. Is there anything new or innovative or useful that we've learned over the last year as far as management strategies? Because this is always the controversial thing. Hunters are always up in arms about how a state decides to manage CWD once it arrives. Um, Is there anything new on that front or that's being tried Uh, I think last year we talked about this a little bit and you were encouraged with, with one state. I honestly can't remember which it was now, but, uh, I don't know anything new on that front or we're just kind of doing the same old, same old.
2: Well, the folks are definitely looking at at some new things and partly because they're starting to understand, you know, this need to, to get more effort on the doe side. Um, Pennsylvania is actually probably the best example right now because they are going through a, a, an update of their CWD plan and, um, they have taken the stance, which I think is exactly right. They have gone out to the hunters in their disease zones and have admitted right up front, "Hey, we can't do this without you. We need your help. We want you to be the saviors in all of this and help us battle this disease. And we want you to do this by shooting, you know, X number of antlerless deer. You know, we need to increase the antlerless side. So here's the deal." We are very. We know that we can come in with targeted removal after the season with sharpshooters, you know, and, and shoot these extra deer. Um, you don't want us to do this. We don't want to have to do that. We would much rather work with you during the hunting season and have you shoot more antlerless deer than you have in the past. You're still going to have very huntable populations of deer when we're done. We're not asking you to go to zero with a deer herd, but we do need you to shoot more deer. Here's why. And they're doing a great job, education, sharing this information. And if you can hit these harvest rates that we need, kind of similar to some of the stuff that's going on in Michigan in that disease research area, if you can hit these harvest totals of antlers deer, then there will be no targeted removal postseason. You know, if you don't hit them, then we're going to be forced to come in and do this, but please, we want to do this with you first. So my take on it is, is it is the first time that an agency like that has really reached out and, uh, truly try to be a good partner for the hunters and and let them know right up front you guys are the ones guys and gals that will make or break this program you know we need you we know we can't do it without you and just that reaching you know and trying to develop that relationship man that goes a long way to getting support from not all of the landowners and hunters by sure but from a lot of them so i think that is the ticket to solving this issue moving forward stronger relationships because hunters are absolutely needed. And if they understand how they can help, they are more likely to help. So education is, is the key to that big, you know, strong educational campaigns. So uh, anyway, I think that's a pretty exciting thing. And uh, I'm excited to see where it goes here.
1: Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. So so speaking of other important ways that hunters can partner with, with whether it be managing agencies or legislators that are in some ways impacting the population or the the, the resource. Um, I know there's a number of different things that you do and the, the conservation side of QDMA works on as far as policies, as far as pushing various proposals or supporting various things that are, that are ongoing in different states. Um, I'm curious what some of the major things, things is the wrong word. I'm blanking on the right word here. Um, but some of the various proposals or pieces of legislation or, or anything ongoing across the country that you think the hunters need to know about and put our support behind. Um, You know, I know there's this, uh, Pittman-Robertson Modernization Act that's out there. I'm curious if that's something we should be paying more attention to. I know there's been a proposal put out there to protect the Boundary Waters, which I know you guys have lent your support to, which I think is awesome. Um, are, are those things that we should be talking more about? Is there anything else on your radar uh, that we need to kind of rally
2: around? What, what do we need to know about? what you just mentioned both of those are great and 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 good for all sportsmen and women um the one big thing right now that we really could use support for that is going to benefit all hunters is uh there's a fair number of federal bills out there right now that are looking at increasing federal funding for cwd research and management and uh Back when you know the early 2000s, there was close to 20 million in federal dollars that the state agencies got to to manage CWD, to sample and all that. Well, all that money is gone. It was as soon as they figured out the CWD likely couldn't impact humans, all that money dried up. So all of the sampling that's done today and surveillance and monitoring, the vast majority of that's coming right out of the state agency budgets. And uh, man, wouldn't it be better if our states could use that for things like hunter access and habitat enhancement and um, so. There's a, we are pushing hard with some of these federal legislators to get this federal funding, which would allow agencies to then use more of their own budgets on cool things like habitat enhancement and that. So that is the one thing that the hunters can get behind. Um, it, it was a great push last year, and we thought we were going to get about $15 million in federal funding for the states. Um, it didn't end up happening. That will be reintroduced again this year. And, and that probably, I would say probably, arguably is the single most important bill like that the hunters can get behind to really make a difference with what we have on uh, both now to hunt deer and, and in the future.
1: Okay well when that gets reintroduced I will definitely uh, be railing the troops to get behind that again. I know that that research money and, and just knowledge we're, we're just lacking so much information still and it seems like the only way to the only way to get that is to get money behind it get the research going and um, cross our fingers and toes. That's right.
2: Outside of legislation, one thing, the best thing that hunters can do, though, is take somebody else hunting, expose somebody new, take them, introduce them to the sport. Uh, that's cheap. That's easy. We all can do that. So uh, you know, I challenge everybody this year to, to get somebody and uh, expose them, you know, at least once to the woods and, uh, you know, hopefully m- multiple times. So
1: yeah. that is a great place to leave us off here today. Lots of great information, Kip. I appreciate uh, you sharing it with us today and taking all the time to put together the report. For people that want to see this whole thing, the whole report, and get all, there's a lot more that we didn't cover. Where can they find that?
2: They can go right to, to QDMA.com. Um, we have all of our wait till reports on the website as free downloads. So they can go and grab it and um, have a blast searching through and uh, seeing how their state compares to others.
1: Very good stuff, Kip. Thank you for your time.
2: Absolutely, Mark. Thank you. Uh, awesome job with, uh, with the back 40 and everything you do for conservation. And uh, man, I can't wait to read your book.
1: Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. And that is going to do it. Thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate you listening. Lots of cool stuff coming up. We're kind of retooling, figuring out what the plan is going to be for 2020. New ideas, new projects, new hunts, new stories, new guests, lots of cool stuff on the way. So stick around. And until next time, stay Wired to hunt.
0: I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You